0: This is the Moira Pentecostal Church podcast, providing you with sound biblical teaching. We hope you will be encouraged, challenged, and blessed by this ministry. John's Gospel, Chapter 5, Gospel of John, the fifth chapter. Reading from verse 1. After this, there was a feast of the Jews, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Now, there is in Jerusalem by the sheep gate a pool which is called in Hebrew Bethesda, having five porches. And in these lay a great multitude of sick people, blind, lame, paralyzed, waiting for the moving of the water. For an angel went down at a certain time into the pool and stirred up the water, and whosoever dropped, stepped in first after the stirring of the water was made well of whatever disease he had. Now a certain man was there who had an infirmity thirty-eight years. And when, he saw, and when Jesus saw him lying there and knew that he had already been in that condition a long time, he said to him, Do you want to be made well? The sick man answered, Sir, I have no man to put me into the pool when the water is stirred up, but while I am coming, another steps down before me. And Jesus said to him, Rise, take up your bed and walk. And immediately the man was made well, took up his bed and walked. And that day was the Sabbath. The Jews therefore said to him who was cured, It is the Sabbath. It is not lawful for you to carry your bed. He answered them, He who made me well said to me, Take up your bed and walk. And then they asked him, Who is the man who said to you, Take up your bed and walk? But the one who was healed did not know who it was, for Jesus had withdrawn, a multitude being in that place. Afterwards Jesus found him in the temple and said to him, See, you have been made well. Sin no more, lest a worse thing come upon you. The uh, story is familiar enough to us all. Uh, What I want to draw to your attention is when Jesus found this man later in the temple, uh, I think that it was obvious uh, because of what Jesus said to him that his particular infirmity was the result of sins or a sin in his life. We do not know what that sin was. But it was obvious because verse 14, See, I have made you well, sin no more, lest a worse thing come upon you. Now, of course, it's not always the case, is it, uh, that people who are ill or having an infirmity, that it's to do with a personal sin that they have committed. Of course, sin is the reason for all sickness and all disease and all illness and everything because of the fall in the Garden of Eden. But in his case... At least in his case, it seems to be personal. Something he did or some way he lived in the past caused this infirmity. Now, we all know the old saying, and I'm sure every one of us has said it at some time or other. You've made your bed, now you're going to have to lie on it. We've all said that, haven't we? We have made your bed, now you're going to have to lie on it. In other words, you caused this mess... So you're just going to have to put up with it. You are the one who caused this. It's your fault. It's all you're doing. So, get on with it. You made the bed. You can lie in it. Now, Jesus could have berated this man. Jesus could have said to this man, these past 38 years of trouble you have had was all your own fault. So, I'm not going to do anything. You have made your bed so you can just lie in it. But Jesus didn't say that, did he? Instead, Jesus says, rise, take up your bed and walk. Aren't you glad that God is a God of the second chance? Aren't you glad he never leaves us where he finds us? People may say to you, well, you're the one who brought this on yourself, so you'll have to suck it up. The devil will say to you, you deserve all that's happening to you. It was all your own fault anyway. Do not expect God to do anything for you. You're to blame after all. But Jesus says, rise, take up your bed, and walk. Even if we sin, even if we feel miserably, even if it was completely our fault, even if the mess we have been in or the mess we're caused, it's all our own fault, the bad decisions, the foolish mistakes, the bed of sinfulness, all of that there, even if it's all of that is true, and Jesus still comes and says, rise, take up your bed, and walk. There's a second chance for those who mess up. With God's help, with Christ's forgiveness, You can rise out out of that bed of weariness, that bed of failure, that bed of foolish mistakes, that bed of bad decisions, that bed of sinfulness. You can rise up and walk again. Peter, he made a terrible bed for himself. It wasn't as if he wasn't told in advance. It wasn't as if he didn't have a warning. He did. But he wasn't listening. He made his bed. He spread his sheets. He fluffed up his pillows. He tucked in his duvet. It was a great bed he was making, he thought. Nobody could make a bed like Peter, he thought. Nobody was as right as him, he thought. Nobody was as brave as him, he thought. But the bed he made turned out to be a bed of nails. It was a torture rack. It was a bed of his own making, and it really caused him a lot of pain and a lot of hurt and a lot of disappointment and a lot of discouragement. But thank God, Jesus didn't leave him where he found him. He never leaves you where he finds you either. Yes, we've all made our mistakes. We've all messed up at times. We've all done the wrong thing. We've all sinned before God. And if he had left us there, where would we be today? But he didn't. He came and he says, rise up and walk. So Peter, in effect, Jesus was saying to Peter, Peter, do not let this bed of failure define who you are. Do not let this disaster that you have made don't let that be the final say in your life. I have a work for you to do. I'm not finished with you yet. There's still more ahead. I've still got a great plan for your life. But don't let this failure define you. Oh, yeah. And sometimes we do that. We look back on a failure. That man had lent for 38 years because of some sin in his life. And he knew it. But Jesus forgave him and raised him up again and gave him a new life. Peter had totally blown it, and he knew it. How could he ever come back from this? What embarrassment, what humiliation, what a disaster. But Jesus made sure he wouldn't leave him where he found him. And he raised him up and filled him with his spirit. And on the day of Pentecost, he became a spiritual giant. And what a mighty man of God he was for the rest of his life. Rise, Peter, take up your bed and walk. Elijah, he made a bed for himself too. He built it in Beersheba underneath a juniper tree. And as he lay in that bed... He cried unto God, Lord God, take away my life. I am no better than my fathers. I am a failure. I thought what I do would work. It hasn't worked. I haven't accomplished anything. The nation is as bad as ever it was. They're still worshiping Baal. Jezebel wants to kill me. I'm a complete and utter failure. 400-plus prophets of Baal he slew at Mount Carmel. And within hours, he was running to hide in Beersheba. Hmm. Wasn't fine finest hour in Beersheba. And here he is, and what a miserable bed to lie on. Full of self-pity, full of a sense of failure, of, I wasted my life. There's nothing I have done that's counted for anything. And there he is lying in that bed, but God wouldn't leave him where he found him. Yes, he was low. Yes, he was deflated. Yes, he was defeated. Yes, he was as miserable as sin itself. Yes, he felt there was no hope. There was no future. His life was done. It was over. As a prophet, it was gone. But God... Hadn't finished with him yet, and God had to send an angel, no less, (laughs) to help him to encourage him, because there was two kings to anoint, and there was a successor he had to anoint, Elisha. David, he made himself a bed to lie in, and it wasn't just a metaphorical bed. It was a literal bed. And he didn't lie alone in it. He lay with Bathsheba, his neighbor's wife. And what a disaster that was. In second Samuel chapter 11. If I'm going to have a little look here at Second Samuel chapter 11. It happened in the spring of the year at the time when kings go out to battle that David sent Joab and his servants with him and all Israel and they destroyed the people of Ammon and besieged Rabbah. But David remained at Jerusalem. Spring of the year. Time for war. That David was now well established in his kingdom, felt completely secure, so established, so secure, so prosperous, had a great army, that on this occasion, he felt he did not need to go out and lead his troops into battle. He should have. Had he have done so, that he always did in the past, then this disaster never would have happened but he remained in Jerusalem. Then it happened one evening that David arose from his bed and walked out onto the roof of the king's house. Probably was a hot, sticky night. He probably wanted a breath of fresh air, a spring gentle breeze. He was out on the roof, and from the roof he saw a woman bathing. And the woman was very beautiful, to behold. Men are attracted to the opposite sex by the eye gate. Women are not necessarily attracted to the opposite sex by the eye gate. They're more nuanced. But men, it's what we see attracts. And he saw this beautiful woman Bathing. She shouldn't have been bathing. With a window open, or maybe in her balcony. But for whatever reason she was, maybe it was too hot in the house. And David saw her that she was beautiful. At that point he should have turned away. He should have went back into his room. But he didn't. He lingered. And as he lingered, he longed. So David sent and inquired about the woman. Step two that he never should have taken. He inquired about the woman. And someone said, Is this not Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite? So not only... only His fornication came into his mind, but now adultery. A married woman. Alarm bells are ringing. Red flags are flying. Should have stopped there. Should have said, God, this is not right. I'm heading for trouble. But he didn't. He didn't. Exodus 20, the tenth commandment. Thou shalt not covet thy neighbor's wife. And that's exactly what he's doing. So he's had opportunity after opportunity after opportunity to stop. But he didn't. You see, this is the this is the man when he was a boy conquered a giant. But now he's a man, there's a giant that's conquering him, the giant of lust. Can I say today, as bluntly as I can say this, if anybody in here, man or woman, are listening on the podcast or the DVD, if any one of us is looking at Wrongly, at someone of the opposite sex. Please stop it immediately because you're heading for disaster. I'm telling you, you will not come out well if you follow on in this. Not only would you be hurt, but you'll hurt others. And you only can go so far and then you can't back out. So if somebody has been flattering you or giving you the eye, I don't know why I'm laboring this, but I've got to say, if somebody's been flattering you or giving you the eye, turn away now. Stop it. If you're the one doing it, stop it. Let me tell you, as a pastor of 38 years, I have seen those situations. And I have warned people. Face to face, I've warned them, because I could see it. But they didn't pay heed and the pain and the hurt and the grief it caused. And so here's David. After knowing, not only was this somebody's wife, but this is one of his best soldiers. David had 37 mighty men. Uriah the Hittite was one of them. One of his bravest and best soldiers. And he knew it. But this giant had taken over his life. Then David sent messengers and took her, and she came to him, and he lay with her, for she was cleansed from her impurity, and she returned to her house. And so the deed was done. Can't unscramble eggs, it's done. But that's not the end of the story. As far as David was concerned, that's it. One night, that's it. Somebody said that sin always takes you farther than you want it to go. It makes you pay more than you want it to pay. Verse 5, and the woman conceived. So she sent and told David... And said, "I am with child." And suddenly, he's realizing, "Ah, this is a big problem. a big problem." And he must have thought about it for a couple of days. And then suddenly he had a coming plan. I know what I'll do. I'll fix this. Nobody will be any the wiser. I'll fix it. He said to Joab, Joab was his top general, and he was also David's nephew, said to Joab, send me Uriah the Hittite. Remember, these were out fighting the battle. And Joab sent Uriah to David, and when Uriah had come to him, David asked how Job was doing, how the people were doing, how the war was prospering. And David said to Uriah, Go down to your house and wash your feet. That was a nice way of saying, You know, you've been out there on the battlefield and it's tiring and you're a brave man and you've been fighting for me and I, I think you need a little rest. I, I think you should just go to be with your wife for a little while. Wash your feet. I'm sure you must have missed Bathsheba for these weeks in the battlefield. Just go home and just... Well, you get the picture. So Uriah departed from the king's house, and a gift of food from the king followed him. But Uriah slept at the door of the king's house with all of his servants of his lord and did not go down to his house. This man had more integrity than David had, And so when they told David, saying Uriah did not go down to his house, David said to Uriah, did you not come from a journey? Why did you not go down to your house? Are you not tired? Do you not need a little rest? Why in the world did you not go home? Uriah said to David, The ark and and Israel and Judah are dwelling in tents, and my lord Joab and the servants of my lord are encamped in the open fields. Shall I then go to my house and eat and drink and lie with my wife? As you live and as your soul lives, I will not do this thing. (laughs) Ah, David hadn't reckoned on a man of integrity. He hadn't reckoned on that. Well, he's a brave man, but he's a soldier. He's been away from his wife for weeks. He'll want to go home. He'll want to be with his wife be intimate but this man said no sir not while the rest of my men and my commanders out there are lying in the fields. I, I wouldn't do that I couldn't do that what a man of integrity then David said to Uriah wait here today also and tomorrow and I will let you depart so Uriah remained in Jerusalem that day and the next now when David called him he ate and drank before him and he made him drunk and at evening he went out to lie on his bed with the servants of his Lord, but he did not go down to his house. Even when he was drunk, he had more integrity than the king. Huh. How often have you heard somebody saying, that person's not a Christian, but they'd live better than most Christians I know? This was a Hittite. This was a proselyte. He wasn't even born born a Jew. And yet he had more integrity. And in the morning it happened that David wrote a letter to Joab and sent it by the hand of Uriah. And he wrote in the letter saying, Set Uriah in the forefront of the hottest battle and retreat for him so that he may be struck down and die. Can you believe that this is David the man of God? Can you believe that this is the one who slew Goliath? This is the one who was a great warrior, a great psalmist. Can you believe this is the... No, you can hardly believe it. And yet here he is, going down, 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 and now he's right down to the very thing where he's planning to kill Bathsheba's husband without dirty in his own hands. And Joab knew what was in the letter. Uriah knew it was in the letter, I beg your pardon. No, Joab knew it was in the letter. Where's my brain this morning? Uriah took that letter. That was his death sentence. That letter was his own death sentence that he was to receive. And Joab knew it. Do you know that from that point on, Job never, ever had the same respect for David? Never. How could he? And so it was while Job besieged the city that he assigned Uriah a place where he knew there were valiant men. Then the men of the city came out and fought with Joab, and some of the people of the servants of David fell, and Uriah the Hittite died also. Then Joab sent and told David all the things concerning the war and charged the messenger, saying, When you have finished telling the matters of the war to the king, if it happens that the king's wrath rises, and he says to you, Why did you approach so near to the city when you fought? Do you not know that they would would shoot from the wall? Who struck Abimelech? the son of Jerubasheth, was it not a woman who cast a piece of millstone on him from the wall so that he died in Thebes? Why did you go near the wall? Then you shall say, your servant Uriah the Hittite is dead also. David was so fake, he was so false. He was just doing this to hear had the deed been done. So the messenger went and came and told David all that Job sent sent by him. And the messenger said to David, Surely the men prevailed against us, came out of us in the field, and we drove them back as far as the entrance of the gate. The archers shot from the wall at your servants, and some of the king's servants are dead. And your servant Uriah the Hittite is dead also. Then David said to the messenger, Thus shall you say to Joab, Do not let this thing displease you, Do not let this evil deed, this evil event, do not let this trouble you. Do not let this thing displease you, for the sword devours one as well as the other. Well, these things happen in battle. (laughs) Strengthen your attack against the city, overthrow it, so encourage him. And when the wife of Uriah heard that Uriah, her husband, was dead, she mourned for her husband. And when her mourning was over, David sent and brought her to his house. She became his wife and bore him a son. Note this, but the thing that David had done displeased the Lord. David said to Joab, don't let this thing displease you. These things happen, but it displeased the Lord. Actually, it displeased Joab too, but he didn't say. He wasn't going to lose his job over it. But he was never the same after it. We know later on in the next chapter that that little child that was born died. And David mourned the loss of that child. We also know that their second child together, now his man and wife, was Solomon, who would later become king. But I want to just follow on just a few minutes more with this. David thought it all the bases covered. Uriah's gone. The only one really knew was Joab, and he probably wasn't going to say. And he knew. But God knew. And so he's married Bathsheba. It seems to be it's blown over. But it hadn't. For a full year, David trying to hide his sin. He's made his bed and what a miserable, horrible bed it was to lie in for a full year. If you read Psalm 32 and Psalm 38, if you read those two Psalms, not now, but if you do that at some point, you'll see how David felt during that year. Inside he was crushed. He was broken. Inside he felt so guilty Inside, He was so angry with himself. Inside, he knew God wasn't on for this. God was against this. But he was a king. He was a proud man. He couldn't tell anybody. Actually, he and Bathsheba, according to the Old Testament law, were deserving of death. And so for a full year, he went through this hell on earth in his bed that he made for himself to lie in. But God wouldn't leave him where he found him. God is the God of a second chance. You know, God could have wiped his hands with him forever after that. But he didn't. God sent a prophet to rebuke him and to cause him to repent. Then the Lord sent Nathan to David, and he came in and said to him, But I tell you what, Nathan's a brave man. Prophets had a tough job in the Old Testament. They weren't universally liked. <laughs> they really weren't. Then the Lord sent... Nathan to David, and he came to him, and he said to him, There were two men in the city, one rich and the other poor. The rich man had exceedingly many flocks and herds, but the poor man had nothing except one little ewe lamb, which he had had bought and nourished, and it grew up with him together and with his children. It ate of his own food and drank from his own cup and lay in his bosom, and was like a daughter to him. David, of course, being a shepherd in his past, could recognize this. And a traveler came to the rich man. A hmm. traveler came to David. A traveler of lust came to David. A traveler came to the rich man who refused to take from his own flock and from his own herd to prepare one for the wayfaring man who had come to him. But he took the poor man's lamb and prepared it for the man who had come to him. So David's anger was greatly aroused against the man. And he said to Nathan, As the Lord lives, the man who has done this thing shall surely die. At that point, at that point, he was so engrossed in this this little story he had heard, and he so identified as a shepherd, he was so angry over this little lamb and what this shepherd had done to his own little lamb. Surely, he shall surely die. And he shall restore fourfold for the Lamb because he did this thing and because he had no pity. Then Nathan said to David, You are the man. You are the man. Those four words devastated David. All of that pent up guilt, emotion, hurt. all of that pent up for a whole year, and now the dam burst. He couldn't hold it in any longer. You are the man. Thus saith the Lord God of Israel, I anointed you king over Israel, I delivered you from the hand of Saul, I gave you your master's house and your master's wives into your keeping, gave you the house of Israel and Judah, and if that had been too little, I also would have given you much more. Why have you despised the commandment of the Lord to do evil in his sight. You have killed Uriah the Hittite with the sword. You have taken his wife to be your wife, and you have killed him with the sword of the people of Ammon. Ah, what a devastating message to hear. And David's heart must have jumped out of his chest at this message. You are the man. It's all your fault. You're the sinner. You're the one who committed adultery. You're the one to blame for Uriah the Hittite's death. You are the man. Now, therefore, the sword shall never depart from your house because you have despised me and have taken the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your wife. Thus saith the Lord, Behold, I will raise up adversity against you from your own house, and I will take your wives from before your eyes and give them to your neighbor, and he shall lie with your wives in the sight of this son. For you did it secretly, but I will do this thing before all Israel, before the son. Be sure our sins will find us out. So David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. Nathan, you're absolutely right. I'm the guilty man, and I know it. And I've had a year of hell hiding it. I'm sure he felt like saying, Thank you, Nathan. Now it's out. Now I can deal with it. No matter what, now I can face it and deal with it. I don't have to hide it anymore. But God doesn't leave him where he found him. Nathan said to David, the Lord also has put away your sin. You shall not die. He could have, and he should have, But God spared him. God spared him. And in a sense, God was saying to David, David, rise up and walk. Your sins are forgiven. Yes, there's consequences that you'll never be able to change. But as far as your sin is concerned, I've forgiven it. Rise up and walk. Ah, David. Let me just quickly say this. Psalm 51. After that meeting, after that meeting, at some point David wrote this psalm. It's called A Prayer of Repentance. And the heading, it says, "A Psalm of David, when Nathan the prophet went to him after he had gone into Bathsheba. Have mercy upon me, O God, according to your loving kindness, according to the multitude of your tender mercies. Blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin, for I acknowledge my transgressions and my sin is always before me. Notice how personal... He took this. He's not trying to blame anybody. There's nobody to blame. Well, he might have blamed Bathsheba and said, well, she shouldn't have been out there bathing. But he didn't. Because at the end of the day, the problem lay with him. And the best way for any of us to deal with any sin in our lives is own it. Own it. And say, Lord, I'm guilty. Please forgive me. And he'll be delighted and pleased to abundantly pardon. Because that's the nature of God. He's a God of grace and mercy. Blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. He realized he had a stain in his heart that nothing could take away. Only God himself. For I acknowledge my transgressions. My sin is always before me for a whole year. It was the last thing he thought about before he got into bed. The first thing he thought about when his eyes opened in the morning. No doubt looking about his palace. And no doubt when his eyes met Joab, he knew Joab knew. And by this time, everybody was going to know. (laughs) And probably the word had got out among the courtiers, among the, maybe the servants, maybe even among his family. And it was hard to look anybody in the face. Against you, you only have I sinned and done evil in your sight. Yes, he had sinned against Bathsheba. Yes, he had sinned against that little child that died. Yes, he had sinned against Uriah the Hittite. Yes, he had sinned against Ahithophel, who was Bathsheba's grandfather, who later turned against him and sided with his son who was trying to take David's throne. My own familiar friend, he lifted up his head against me. That's what he was talking about. But you can see why. Ahithophel knew about this. So yes, they had sinned against all of them, but in light of sinning against God, that just peels into the shadow. Because actually, no matter who we sin against, the greater sin is against God. Let me tell you, God takes it very seriously. And God had to pay an awful price of giving his son to die on the cross to forgive us sins. (sighs) Against you and you only have I sinned and done this evil in your sight, that you may be found just when you speak and blameless when you judge. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity and in sin my mother conceived me. I was born a sinner. And we're all being born sinners, haven't we? So David's acknowledging from a moment I was born, I was a sinner. But he's not just blaming that old nature because he was accountable for his own sins. And we are accountable for our own sins as well as for the sins of Adam that put us into this position. But we're accountable for our own sins. Behold, you desire truth in the inward parts, and the hidden parts you will make me to know wisdom. Purge me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. Whenever someone had to go to the priest who was a leper, who felt the rather in remission, or somehow they were healed, they'd have to go and show themselves to the priest, and there was a little ceremony took place, and part of that was the priest would take his, which was a, a, like a herb, aromatic herb plant, and he would dip it in water, and he would sprinkle the person. So David here is feeling like a leper. That's what he's referring to. He felt like a leper. Like leprosy had taken over his body. And by the way, you remember the children of Israel had to put blood on the doorposts and the lentils of their houses in Egypt, so when the death angel would come up pass over, when they saw the blood, what did they apply it with? With hyssop. This was a serious thing for David. Make me to hear joy and gladness that the bones you have broken may rejoice. There hadn't been much joy and gladness for a whole year. <laughs> hadn't written any Psalms. He probably, like the children of Israel, hung his harp on the willow. As they sat down by the rivers of Babylon, how can we sing the Lord's song on a strange land? He's in a strange land all right. He's lying in a horrible bed. He didn't Felix like singing. He lost his song, he lost his spirit rejoicing. He lost that desire even to write. Hide your face from my sins and blot out my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. The word create there is bara. And it's the word that's used when God created the heavens and the earth out of nothing. So David here is looking for more than restoration. He's looking for regeneration. He's looking for a new heart, a brand new heart. He needed it. This old heart, Lord, there's a giant that's conquered it. I need a new heart. That's what he's saying. Create in me a clean heart, O God. Renew a steadfast spirit within me. I'm so prone, Lord, to slipping and sliding. I'm so weak in this here, Lord. Renew a steadfast spirit within me. Do not cast me away from your presence. Hmm. He had seen Saul before him cast away from God's presence. He said to Samuel, God said, why why are you mourning for Saul, saying I have have refused him for being king? I'm I'm finished with him and being king. He's gone. And David saw that. He said, I don't want to be like Saul. I do not want to be like Saul. I don't want your spirit to cast me away. And do not take your Holy Spirit from me. first time in Scripture when the third person of the divine Godhead is called the Holy Spirit. It's only twice in all of the New Testament he's called that, the in and Isaiah, the Holy Spirit, because he's thinking of holiness now. He's thinking of his deep sin, like leprosy, clinging to him. He says, I want to be clean. I want to be clean. Restore to me the joy of your salvation. Uphold me by your generous Spirit. Then I will teach transgressors your ways, and sinners shall be converted unto you. Deliver me from the guilt of bloodshed, O God, he was thinking of Uriah, the God of my salvation, and my tongue shall sing aloud of your righteousness. And it goes on there. Hmm. To be forgiven. Yes, he set some things in operation that he couldn't change. But at least he knows he can rise up and walk again because he's forgiven. Worthy of death. Worthy of being rejected by God completely. But God says, no. I've still something for him to do. He's still going to be king over Israel. David, rise up and walk. You've lain in that bed for a year. In bed of failure. Bed of despair. Bed of guilt. Bed of sin. Rise up. It's time to walk again. I labored on that point more than I ever intended this morning. Because I wanted to talk about somebody else when they haven't died. But when God gets you to labour a point there's usually a reason for it I have no reason in that world to say that to you but what the spirit is saying listen listen save yourself a lifetime of heartache and rise up and walk again Let's pray. Bless the Lord. Maybe what you feel, maybe you have a problem that's not as deep and as dark as David's problem. Maybe it was some other kind of failure in your past or a wrong decision you made or something you said that couldn't be unsaid. I want to tell you this morning the Lord won't leave you where he found you. He's a God of a second chance. And you can, in Jesus' name, rise up and walk again. The Lord hasn't finished with us. We've still got a future. Still got something for us to do for his kingdom. And sometimes we just need to put that in the past and rise up and walk. Lord, we thank you for your word that not only encourages and inspires, but corrects. Lord, your word is sharper than a two-edged sword, pierces even to the dividing asunder of the soul and spirit, knows the very thoughts and intents of her heart. We thank you for that. A saw of any man or woman today, Lord, is lying in a bed that they've made for themselves, and the devil, or maybe even people, is telling them that you just have to lie in it. Lord, I pray that they'll see today that Jesus says, rise up and walk, that there is a future, there is a hope, there is a new life in Jesus. So we give you thanks for this. We bless you and we praise you for it.